Good morning. Add my welcome. So thankful as I join my voice with yours in singing and as Caleb led us through Romans 8 reading this morning. Uh, what a significant thing just to be joined together standing in faith with other believers. Uh, how edifying that is to our souls. Collins Dictionary choice for the 2017 word of the year was fake news. Probably a term you've heard a lot over the last couple of years, uh, used in all kinds of different contexts by all kinds of different people to use all kinds of different things. Uh, maybe you've had it where you've reposted or liked something you found out later on was actually a hoax or satire. Or maybe you've seen somebody post something and cringed and thought, oh no, somebody should tell them that's not real. Um, one thing that's been increasingly evident to many people, thankfully, and this is a good thing, is that you, you can't believe everything you see or hear or read on the internet. Which seems like kind of common sense. And that, that basic point is pretty easy to affirm in general. Don't believe everything you hear. Right? Don't, don't be gullible. Good, fine, that's great. But really, that points to a deeper fundamental human problem. How do you discern what you can trust? How do you know who you can believe? What standard do you use to determine what is reliable and trustworthy and true? That is a profound human problem. Because as human beings, we're finite, we're limited creatures, we don't know everything, and so everything that comes to us, we're filtering through our lack of knowledge, thinking, well, maybe there's something out there that would convince me this is true, but how do I know? What do I judge it against? How do I determine who to trust? And in a pluralistic society where lots of people believe lots of different things and make all kinds of different truth claims, and they can't all be true, how do you know? These are crucial questions for you as disciples of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, because being a disciple of Jesus Christ requires you to trust and believe in Jesus. You're not a Christian if your faith in Jesus is a bet. Like, I could be wrong, but it just seems like the safest bet. And so I'll, I'll kind of put all my chips in on Jesus because, you know, being wrong there would be less bad than you know, choosing to reject him and finding out that there is a God and I'm going to hell. And that's how some people think, kind of hedge their bets. I'd rather believe in Jesus and find out he's not true than reject him and find out he is. But you're not a Christian if you come to Jesus like he's a bet. And you're not a Christian if you come to Jesus like he's one of many options out there and just kind of the best one that works for you. So this is a crucial question for disciples of Jesus, and it's a critical question for those who are living as missionaries in the city of Sioux Falls, telling other people about Jesus. As you get into conversations with people who don't believe in Jesus, and you're holding out the hope that Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Savior of the world, He is who He says He is, He is true and He's trustworthy, and you're inviting other people to trust in Him, you're, you're not just holding Him out as one of many options actually confidently asserting Jesus is the only hope for you. So we're not just making suggestions like, you know, hey, if you feel like it, if you get around to checking out Jesus, maybe give him a, a try. I heard one really well-known pastor and author once say that. Uh, give Jesus a 60-day trial. That's not our offer to the world. 
We don't try Jesus out and see if we like him, if he fits our lives. So as missionaries, we need to know the truthfulness of the gospel and be convinced of it. So how can you be sure the Bible's true? Do you have to read every religious text in the world and compare them all side by side to know? How can you know that Jesus is the only Savior of the world? Do you have to try all the religions in order to know? How can you be sure? Turn with me to John chapter 7. I'm going to preach from the whole chapter. And like Greg did a few weeks ago, next week I'm going to come back and zero in on a a specific paragraph here. But for now I'm going to read just verses 1 through 36. So still a large chunk of chapter 7. Follow along with me. This is God's holy and authoritative and sufficient word, and through it, he speaks to us today. It is living and it's active. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went up about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, but he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come 
of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray. Father, we turn our eyes, our minds, our hearts toward you this morning. We do that by sitting under the authority of your word, your word which records and recounts your marvelous deeds among the children of man throughout history, your word that has preserved for us the, the truth, the life, the teaching, the death and resurrection, the ascension and rule and reign of Jesus. We look to you because where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we need a word from heaven to speak. We need your authoritative word to illuminate our dark minds that we might know you. Our only hope to know you is that you would reveal yourself to us, which you do in your word and in the person and work of Jesus. And so we pray that you would speak to us now for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So my aim as we unpack this text this morning, is to show you how you can know for sure that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the only hope of salvation for every man, woman, and child on earth. And ultimately, through that, it's, it's my hope and my prayer that knowing that, being confident about that would do two things in you. First of all, that that would encourage your own faith, that it would strengthen your confidence in Jesus, that you would be one of those who comes to Jesus, not like those who are hedging their bets or those who are on the fringe interested in him, curious in him, but those who are confident he is God's hope for me, that you would your faith would be strengthened and encouraged. We, we've called this series Believe, and we've pointed again and again how John sums up his whole purpose in writing this gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel so that people would believe, people in his day and people in our day, that you would believe in Jesus. And one of the things he does again and again is he, he shows us what true faith looks like, oftentimes by showing us what it's not. And so one aim in this is that your own faith and confidence in Jesus would be built up and strengthened. And secondly, it's my hope and prayer that this would embolden your witness to others. Our witness in the world will be timid and reserved and weak or maybe just non-existent. If we aren't convinced Jesus is who he says he is, we won't talk about Jesus to others because we'll think, well, you know, Jesus, that's like something I'm into and he works for me, but 
I don't want to like hurt anybody's feelings or step on anybody's toes. But when you come to see he is who he says he is, he is the hope of the world, then it's not a matter of being afraid of hurting people's feelings. It's, it's good news for the world and your confidence and your boldness and mission increases as you see that and believe that. So your comfort and encouragement in your faith and your joy and confidence in mission. That, that's what I'm praying for as we unpack John 7 together. And to understand how John 7 does those two things, encourages your faith and emboldens your witness, it, I think it's important to read these events, what happens in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths under the banner or the heading of some of John's earlier summary statements in this gospel. Going all the way back to John chapter 1, kind of the introduction to the whole gospel, the, the prologue, when he says in Verses 10 and 11, he, Jesus, was in the world. This is kind of John's summary of the entire unfolding of Jesus' life and work. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and what happened? His own people did not receive him. That is what is playing out in real time before us in John chapter 7. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. A couple chapters later, John 3, 19, we hear more specifically the root issue going on. This is the judgment. This is the assessment. Here's what's happening. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. The light came into the world right before their eyes. And they hated it. Not because they didn't see it, but because their own works were evil. That's what's unfolding in John 7. Jesus is the light. He is illuminating the world, veiled in darkness. And what happens? Everyone sees the light and acknowledges his glory and falls down before him and worships him and follows him faithfully forever? No. But the light does expose the darkness of human sin. So this is the first thing you need to see here. Re remember that everything, everything outside of Jesus is darkness. Everything is darkness outside of Jesus. He is light stepping into a dark world and everything about the human condition in rebellion against God is darkness. Apart from Jesus, the world stumbles about in intellectual darkness why are there arguments and objections and questions and doubt and uncertainty about Jesus? First and foremost, not because of lack of evidence, but because of intellectual darkness, futile thinking, uncertainty. We see this from the beginning of John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus is interacting with his, at this point in time, unbelieving brothers. And they, what do they do? Ignorantly offer him some marketing advice. Hey, look, anybody who's trying to get a crowd of people, a following. They do that in public. What are you doing? Go up to the feast. This is a great opportunity. All of Israel is going to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. This is a big deal, a celebration of God's faithfulness in the harvest. Everyone will be there. Go show them who you are, Jesus. And they say kind of sarcastically because they don't even believe in him at this point. To which Jesus responds, for you, any time is the right time. You are just completely out of sync with the ways of God, the timing of God, the purposes of God. That's the human condition outside of God, just totally clueless to what God is doing in the world. Jesus 
is marching to a different beat. His life and his mission is orchestrated by God's sovereign plan, which is something that his brothers, apart from any kind of trust in God, they know nothing about it. And and that's a summary of the entire human condition. All of our timing and all of our strategy and all of our thinking is just ignorant outside of God. We see this intellectual darkness in the divided public opinion about Jesus that runs all the way through this chapter. There's this swirling confusion about his identity. It's summed up early on in verse 12 like this. There was much muttering about him among the people. John recaps again at the end of the chapter, verse 43. There was a division, a schism, a sharp divide among the people over him. This is a divided people, a divided time, divided opinions about Jesus. On the one hand, you've got people saying, he's a good guy. And others saying, no, he's not good at all. He's leading people astray, which is not just something to be indifferent to. That's something to be up in arms about. Arrest him. Verse 15, some people think that he speaks like a man of learning. A couple of verses later, the crowd shouts out, you have a demon. Sharp, divided opinions about Jesus. Verse 30, people are seeking to arrest him. The very next verse, there are others who believed in him. Some are convinced, I mean, when the Christ appears, is he really going to do more signs than this? This must be the guy. And others are saying, no way. It's not going to happen like this. When he shows up, we'll have no clue. He'll just come out of nowhere. We won't know anything about him. Some are convinced, some are unconvinced, some marvel, no one ever spoke like this, and some scoff at any gullible fool who would believe. So Jesus comes and he makes these claims, and it divides people. All the way through history, the claims of Jesus divide. In logic, one of the, one of the three basic laws of logic is the, the law of the excluded middle. Every truth claim is either true or false. There's no middle ground. So anytime somebody makes a truth claim, it's either true or it's not. And you can't take up a middle position on it. And Jesus made truth claims. And what we see, the human response to that, there's just this confusion and uncertainty and questioning and doubting. Here's the, the real problem I see in the human intellectual condition going on in chapter 7. Those who reject Jesus, on what basis do they reject him? By what authority? They reject his authority, but you can only ever reject something when you're using some other standard of measurement. Jesus rebukes them in verse 24 like this. He says, do not judge. Literally in the Greek, it's a a command. Stop judging. Stop judging by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He calls into question the very authority that they're using when they reject him. To reject Jesus as false or bad or dangerous, you have to have a standard of truth or goodness. And for many of the Jews who rejected Jesus, they thought the standard they were using when they rejected him was the law of Moses. That's what the authorities appeal to at the very end of the chapter. None of you know the law. We're educated. We know the law. We know that this guy is not to be trusted. But Jesus destroys their argument by flipping that standard and showing them, you don't even understand that standard. In fact, all you do is break the law. In verse 21, he says, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. What he's saying is, look, on the Sabbath day, you will circumcise an eight-day-old baby, 
in order to keep the law. And you understand that the circumcision didn't just come from Moses, but all the way back to Abraham. And so circumcising a child on the eighth day, you see that as this perfecting act is right to do on the Sabbath because it's consistent with the law, not contradictory to the law. And so he says, if you circumcise a child on the eighth day, which is just a sign of the deeper work that's needed, that God would change your hearts and give you new hearts, circumcise your hearts, then why are you judging me when I fulfill the entire law on the Sabbath and make a man's whole body well? That's what Jesus is doing. He says, circumcision is just the sign. I come along and fulfill that by making the whole person well, inside and out. And I do it on the Sabbath. I fulfill that too, the rest that I offer. Jesus doesn't break the law. He fulfills it. And so he takes away the very standard they would use to reject him by showing he doesn't break it. He fulfills it. In our day, anyone who would reject Jesus has to have some standard by which they reject him. And they should be upfront about what that standard is. And Jesus says, you're holding the ruler backwards. You're measuring me against it. I fulfill it. What happens if we hold that standard up to you? You break it. This is important to realize. People in our day reject the teachings of the Bible, reject the claims of Christ. People say things like, the Bible is full of messed up, outdated, regressive, restrictive, immoral teachings. But always ask somebody who raises that question, that challenge, by what standard? What standard are you using when you judge God as bad? When you judge the Bible as wrong? What's that standard? Where do you get that from? And the irony here. Sinful human beings questioning the authority of Jesus. I mean, it's like a, a drunk person trying to arrest the police officer. That's what's happening here. Jesus comes and he says, I have, I have authority from above. And they're stumbling around in their confusion trying to arrest him. And that's pointing us toward the real issue. It's not just an intellectual darkness about Jesus. The the darkness of the world is much more sinister than ignorance or confusion. There is a moral and spiritual darkness here. There's corruption and wickedness. Look at the charges Jesus levels against the world. He says in verse 7, he testifies about the world that its works are evil. And that's why they hate him. That's why they reject him. It's a moral issue, not not an IQ issue. And keep in mind, when when he says that he testifies that the world is evil, he's not talking about the world like the red light district of Amsterdam. He's not talking about like the, the world like Las Vegas. He's talking about the world as in the nation of Israel gathering together for this religious feast in Jerusalem at the temple. He testifies that their works are evil. When he's there with them, he tells those people, the religious faithful gathered in the temple, verse 19, none of you keeps the law. In fact, you're trying to kill me right now. He says in verse 28, you do not even know God. You don't know him. 
For all your ceremonies, for all your external religion, you don't know God. And he's showing that the darkness, the confusion, the ignorance, the uncertainty about his identity is first and foremost a heart issue. It's a sin issue. It's, it's not just some innocent ignorance. It's, it's morally culpable evil. It's active and willful rebellion against God. Why do people reject the claims of Christ, teachings of the Bible? Because they are engaged in willful rebellion against God. So, so you need to understand as a disciple and as a missionary that moral darkness is the root of intellectual darkness. Both exist in the world. Moral darkness is the root of the intellectual darkness. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So just flip that around for a minute. Jesus is saying, the reason you don't know whether my teaching is true or not is not because of some deficiency in me or my teaching or what I'm saying to you. It's not because of some lack of evidence that I've failed to provide to you. It's because you don't want to do God's will. You don't want to. You're in rebellion against him, and that's why you can't hear. You can't receive what I'm saying to you. You see, the, the human epistemological problem, the knowledge problem, how do we know anything for sure, is fundamentally, it's a sin problem. Not an IQ thing. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Feudal minds. Listen to how he describes our minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And he explains where that comes from. Where, where does the ignorance come from? It's due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Ignorance of understanding due to hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a sin issue. Sinful humans reject the gospel as folly, not because their intellect demands that they have to, to be rational and logical and consistent. No, because their evil deeds demand that they reject it so that they can keep living their own way. No, no one triumphs over the truth of God by some rational argumentation. We just suppress the truth in willful rebellion. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.18. Remember John 3.19? I said this is kind of the banner over what's happening here in chapter 7. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their own works were evil. That's why the world hates Jesus, because they love darkness. And when you get to the root of the problem, this is why it helps with our own doubts and unbelief and questions and doubts of those around us, whatever you identify as the problem begins to point you toward the solution. So back in, was it March when we had that crazy condition where there's still a ton of snow and ice and then heavy rain and it just caused flooding all over the place? Um, I thought, you know, I should go check our basement by the sump and make sure everything's running fine. And I walk into our basement over to the sump and there's a ring of water seeping all over the floor. I thought, oh no. So I talked to my uncle who does basements. That's all he does in Kansas City, repairs basements, and does drain tile and all that kind of stuff. And he said, guaranteed how you've described the weather, you probably just got some frozen thing at the discharge of the sump pump and um, 
just have a plumber come and fix that, and it'll start pumping out all that water again. So I called the plumber, because I thought the problem was with the sump and the discharge pipe. A plumber comes, he opens it up, and he looks in there, and he says, this is pretty dry. It looks pretty good to me. Here's the bill. <laughs> and he left. Oh, my goodness. So the water wasn't coming from the sump, but there's water pooling by it. Where is it coming from? I couldn't do anything to stop that until I identified what the actual problem was. You could pay plumbers lots of money to do all kinds of things that don't actually solve the problem, it turns out. I won't get into all the details of what the problem was, but we found it. When you find the problem, then you know what the solution is. Until you find the problem, you can't do anything about it. If you think that the fundamental human problem is intellectual ignorance, then the solution will be what? Education more information to people. You know, you can hurl all the, the evidence and arguments you want at somebody who's living in rebellion against God. You could even succeed in convincing them God exists, Jesus was real, he even rose from the dead. And how will their heart respond? I still hate him. I'm not going to bow down to him. I don't want to worship him. I mean, the, the prime example of that in all of Scripture is Pharaoh. He had evidence. He saw it with his own eyes. And he was willfully rebellious against God. Who is this God? I'm not going to bow down to him. It wasn't for lack of evidence. A lot of people put their hope in more information, but that's not the root of the issue. Jesus diagnoses a different problem, so he prescribes a different remedy. If your problem is that you hate God because you love sin, then, then what do you need? Verse 17, this is, this is the key. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. He calls the world to repent, to turn, to realign, to come into alignment with God, His will, His word, His purposes. And that's how you'll know. He calls human beings to forsake self-reliant independence from God and to turn and worship God. No one's greatest problem is a lack of physical evidence. I mean, maybe you've thought this way or maybe you know someone who thinks this way. If I could just see something with my own eyes, that would, that would convince me, that would strengthen my faith, that would help me feel more confident. I mean, that would be true if your basic problem was lack of physical sight. But that's not the root of the issue. God took on flesh and dwelt among people who saw him in the flesh, heard him with their own ears, touched him, walked with him, ate the bread that he multiplied right before them, and they murdered him. Jesus does not consider physical sight or lack of it to be your greatest obstacle. In fact, he reserves a special blessing for those who believe without seeing. He says at the end of John's gospel to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus doesn't think that that's the greatest issue. And neither is the greatest problem a lack of rational arguments. I mean, there, there are great arguments out there, and they're helpful to believers. They do encourage our faith for the historical existence of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and his virgin birth and the authenticity of the Bible and all of those things. They are incredible, and we won't unpack all of those today. And while arguments can be helpful and encouraging, they're never ultimately convincing if, here's the key, if your ultimate allegiance is to your own mind and not to God. So the root issue is not lack of evidence, not lack of seeing, it's lack of worship. 
broken worship, lack of reverence and affection and devotion and humility before God. And that's where both the moral darkness and the intellectual darkness come from. So if that's the problem, then then what's the solution? Well, as Jesus claims throughout John's gospel, he is the only way out of darkness. It's his central claim throughout John 7. He is unique. I always want to say things like he is really unique, but that's just redundant. That's what unique means. He is unique. You can't be any degree of unique. You either are or you're not. He stands alone. No one is like him, which means we deal with him and his claims differently than we would deal with any other truth claim that we hear. Every other human speaks with mere human authority, but Jesus, he speaks with authority from above. He is the ultimate self-revelation of God. He says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He claims in verse 30, he who sent me is true. I know him, I come from him, he sent me. So he claims to speak with a completely different kind of authority. And Jesus then is uniquely qualified to be the truth giver. That's what finite human beings like us need. If we don't know everything and we could be wrong about everything, then you talk to some people and ask them this question, they would honestly admit, yeah, I mean, it's totally possible that I'm not even here right now, that I'm like, you know, the matrix. I'm a brain plugged into a vat and all of this is just a computer projection. It could be. I don't know. And they're honest because we don't know everything. What we need is someone from outside who knows everything to speak to us and reveal truth to us. And that's what Jesus claims to do. He, he lived his entire life according to the sovereign will of the Father down to the details of when and where he went and when and where and how he spoke. All throughout John 7, we see this emphasis on his obedience to the Father's timing, the sovereign timing of the Father over his entire life. The point is not so much in all of this, if you were tracking with the when he went up to Jerusalem and when his brothers told him to go and he said, I'm not going, and then he went later and what's going on with all of that. The main point in all of this is not his secrecy so much as his complete reliance on the Father. He walked in step with the Father in everything that he did. Now is not the time. Now is the time, and he stands up and he speaks publicly. Jesus is the one who can fix our worship problem because Jesus is the one who perfectly glorified the Father in everything. Look at John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In everything he did, Jesus glorified the Father, which means He is the one who can fix our broken worship problem, our rebellion against God. I already pointed you to verses 21 through 24 where he he claims he fulfilled the entire law, circumcision, the Sabbath. He fulfills it all. He comes from the Father. He returns to the Father. He says in verse 29, he who sent me is true. I know him. I come from him. He sent me. There is no authority on earth like Jesus. There's no person like Jesus. There's no one who speaks and teaches and makes claims like Jesus does. And here's what's unique about him. He he doesn't come and take those claims and submit those to you as if you reserve the final judgment. Think about it in a courtroom. Who do you present evidence to? 
You give evidence to the judge and the jury. You and I are not the judge and the jury. God the Father is. So Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, here's some ideas and you take it and you think about it, you make up your mind according to your standard and you come back and let me know what verdict you make about me. He comes to the world and he says, your deeds are evil, you don't keep the law, you don't know God at all, and I'm the way back. If your will is to do the will of the Father, you will know. And he calls the world to submit to the authority of God. Something more is necessary, though, for you to know with certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. If our problem is rebellion against God, then the only way for this evil world to be reconciled to fellowship with God is for the Son of God to die for the sins of the world. And, and the cross looms large over this entire chapter. It's, it's hinted in the frequent attempts to arrest him, the repeated talk of killing him. John is kind of ramping up, showing us the tension that's mounting around Jesus and the dark turn that it's going to take. It's, it's building toward this. Jesus' life is moving toward the cross. It's suggested in the, the terms his hour. His hour always refers to his death, and yet we are reassured his hour has not yet come. But even in that, we're reminded it's coming. Think about this. Think about how much does the world hate the truth? We just have to, if, if we're going to boldly, confidently talk about Jesus to the world, we have to know how it works. It's not like everyone is just innocently, neutrally, open-minded, thinking, you know, just give me some more evidence and I'll, I'll believe. Now, what happens when God's truth appears in flesh before people? They, they kill them. That's what we do to the truth of God. And the death of Jesus was necessary, ultimately, to rescue those whose minds and hearts are darkened by sin. God, praise God, he did not offer a set of lectures to educate an ignorant world. He gave his son to die for you. That's what's required. So that your mind and your heart could be redeemed in order to know his truth and walk in his ways and enjoy his life. So, so how can you know for sure? What do you tell others? Sounds so counterintuitive to our minds. The answer in scripture is believe and you will know. Believe and you will know. How do you see? You step into the light. That's where you see. And the world wants to say, no, 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 convince me first that that's the light. When you step into the light, you will see. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something along these lines that you how do you know the sun is shining right now? I, don't, I can't even see the sun itself, but I know the sun is shining because everything else I see in light of the sun. I look out and I see the trees and the grass in the light of the sun. I know the sun is up. You step into Jesus and you see. And when you see everything in the light of Jesus, you know. That, that's verse 17 again. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will know. You will know. The world can't know because the world is directly opposed to God. Jesus says it in... John 8, 43, like this. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You can't bear to. Those whose deeds are evil, who don't keep the law, who would murder God if they had the chance, what is the answer to those people? Not, not just more information. The answer is submit to Jesus. Rely on Jesus in order to know. 
surrender to him. He's not saying, if your will is to do God's will, that he doesn't mean there you got to clean your life up to a sufficient degree first and you know, attain an appropriate level of ethical purity first. He's saying, as long as you rely on yourself, you're going to misjudge. You're going to misunderstand. You're going to misinterpret. That's why he said, stop judging by appearances and judge with right judgment. Only by humbly relying on Jesus can you know with certainty. If you believe, you'll know. And that's, that's essential to us as disciples. I, I said something along these lines last week. If, if, if you reason your way to Jesus and you arrive at Jesus at the end as a conclusion of your own thinking, and your, your faith is the kind of faith that's ultimately rooted in your own reasoning, then your mind retains lordship over Jesus and allows Jesus in to be one of its many subjects. All of the things I believe, Jesus, you can come and take your seat here. I've given you my stamp of approval. But what happens when the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, contradicts you in any way? Well, you retain your thoughts and you reject at least that part of Jesus that you don't like. We see this all around us. People who want to still profess that they're Christians and just start hacking away at all the things in the Bible they, they don't accept and they reject. But if Jesus is Lord, he will be Lord of everything, everything, including your intellect, which means you don't come to Jesus because your intellect gives its stamp of, of approval to him. You come to Jesus so that he can redeem your mind, sanctify it, so that you can know anything at all, so that you can know truth rightly. Here's how Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That seems so backwards to the world, right? I want to start with my knowledge and see if I can arrive at trusting God. Scripture says, fear God. That's the beginning. If you don't fear Him, you don't know anything as you ought to know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. So, would that argument convince Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and no, but I'm not submitting the claims of Jesus to their approval. I'm calling them and every other unbeliever in the world to submit to Jesus and rely on him because knowing the truth in the end is not just knowing some abstract thing. It's not an abstract intellectual pursuit that we undertake apart from God. Knowing the truth means knowing a person. The word of God who took on flesh, walked this earth, hung on the cross, suffered and died for our broken worship and rebellion against God and rose from the dead so that we might be restored to him. Knowing the truth means knowing a person. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know that the teachings of Jesus are from God. There's this self-authenticating ring to it. You want to know God? In the person and work of Jesus, it resonates, you'll see Everything he says, everything he claims, everything he did, that's God's truth made known to us. And that's how we can know for sure. Let's pray.